Medicine and healthcare have always been defined by more than just science. They are also shaped by culture, economics, politics and society. In short, they reflect us, who we are, what we value and what we don't. My name is Kieran Fitzpatrick and this is Body Politics, the podcast where history, medicine and society collide. Hi there, and welcome to episode five of this first season of Body Politics, the podcast where history, medicine and society collide with me, Kieran Fitzpatrick. This series is about the history of infectious diseases and the ways in which they have shaped the politics and populations of particular societies around the world over the past two centuries. The first four episodes have dealt largely with the 19th century, focusing on histories of yellow fever, plague and smallpox, and they're shaping a range of crucial aspects of 19th century society around the world. Slavery in the United States, European colonisation of Australia and the Pacific, and the world's first modern mass anti-vaccination movements in Britain. Last time out, in conversation with Christos Linteris from St Andrews University, We heard how the third plague pandemic that started in 1894 changed scientific understandings of zoonotic diseases, or those that pass from animals, in this case fleas and then rats, to humans, and in the process began shaping the global economy and global culture in new ways. Living as we are under the effects of another zoonotic infection, COVID-19, this is a familiar story. You can hear that episode on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the show's website, bodypoliticspodcast.com, in case you haven't already. In this episode, with the help of Georgia McWinney of Macquarie University in Sydney, we pursue the story of zoonosis by a different path. Instead, not with scientists, but with ordinary people, adapting to new identities and terrifying ways of life as soldiers soldiers at one of the turning points between the 19th and 20th centuries, the First World War. The First World War raged between 1914 and 1918, changing societies, crushing and remaking political orders, and displacing millions of people across Europe, the Middle East and Asia, the echoes of which resonated for the rest of the 20th century. In popular memory, the First World War's maiming and killing of the soldiers who fought it are associated with those men, and often teenage boys, being shelled, gassed and shot in and between trenches that stretched across thousands and thousands of square miles of battlefield. But this masks the fact that everyday life for these soldiers was defined as much by the terror they felt of zoonoses, carried by lice and rats, and the bacteria that infected their feet after days spent in trenches saturated with mud. For decades afterwards, it was these chronic environmental conditions that lingered painfully in the memories of these men, as much as the sufferings they experienced whilst under fire. In the trenches, 
you were on sentry duty, you're, you're, you're up on the parapet. And you know, when you're looking at the parapet, you, you see a shadow coming past your face. And, and, uh, and, and do you know what that was? <laughs> and damn big man-eater, a rat. <laughs> and they awful things. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, and then they run, run around the trenches, up on top of the parapet and everything else, you know. It scares you stiff. No matter how many times you tell it, it always, always comes back at you. That was a recording from 1978 with the First World War veteran named Leonard Wood, who, although British by birth, was residing by then in the Canadian town of Oakville, Ontario, just to the south of Toronto. The accompanying video explains the silence that played out in the final seconds of the clip that you've just heard. Wood is stifling tears, waving his hands and brushing his hair absent-mindedly, struggling to cope with 60-year-old memories of being alone on the Western Front, surrounded by rats, or as he calls them, man-eaters. For one of his contemporaries, an Irishman named Jack Campbell, similar memories continued to define his recollection of the conflict decades after. Can you imagine yourself standing out there in all kind of weather, hail, rain, frost and snow? Any bit of food you got, you go, mind you, that's another thing. If you had a bit of food you were saving for a rainy day, the only safe place for it was in your stomach. There's the rats would find it no matter where you put them. What with the, the, the lice eating the flesh off the live ones and the rats scourging themselves on the bodies of the dead? It was a lovely, real happy time, wasn't it? There was one night, we were, in, we were out of the line at the time, and we were in an old loft. And a uh, young lad I knew very well, he was lying alongside me this night's sleep, and he woke up and he was shouting, he'd been bit. Well, we lit a bit of candle, and right enough, a, a rat had taken a piece out of his cheek. So we put a first field dressing on, and the morning time you seen the doctor. Now, it just shows you how, how poisonous they were. In two days' time, that young lad was dead, and his head and, and, and neck and that had swelled up and gone black. So it just shows you the poison in the rat boys. I often wondered how many Tommies really got killed by rat boys. Because they were there, there were millions. Just as with Wood, the dangers of rats and lice remained a central part of Campbell's memory of the war 70 years later. Although in the same interview, he spoke of the brothers he lost in open combat, shelled and shot at the battles of the Somme in July 1916, and Vimy Ridge in April 1917. Alongside these most intimate of memories, rat bites and lice infestations remained vivid. The accounts of Wood and Campbell are stories about how ordinary people, men, and in Campbell's case, teenage boys, responded to and attempted to live with diseases under circumstances in which medical science was largely unable to help them. Surrounded by the suffering, drudgery and often chaos of the First World War's trenches, the ubiquity of rats, lice and disease forced soldiers such as them to devise their own form of medicine, as Georgia calls it, a vernacular or everyday medicine, in an attempt to, if not cure, then at least cope, both mentally and physically, with the trenches 
and their terrifying infections. I think people will probably associate the First World War with the idea of um, shell wounds or shrapnel wounds or uh, g- gunshot wounds. Mm. They, we probably know less on a on a on a popular level about the sorts of chronic diseases or chronic infections that soldiers were having to put up with. So if you could just give a sense of what those sorts of chronic illnesses and infections were for soldiers in the First World War, that'd be great. Yeah, I think it's quite overstated in in both popular and academic literature. You know, the First World War, it's the first war where you have more deaths from from wounds than from disease. And I think that this uh, elides uh, a lot of the actual issues that soldiers were, were facing actually in the minutiae of their day-to-day life. Um, and even, even for um, the army, these chronic, um, as you say, or, or kind of non-fatal diseases such as trench fever, trench foot, those kinds of things, relapsing fever, they actually cause a lot of wastage to the army. So they actually become quite quite a serious problem in that they're debilitating, they're taking people uh, away from from frontline duty. What are you talking about in terms of percentages here? Like how many soldiers on the Western Front, if you're talking about, say, you work a lot on trench feet, trench foot or um, lice infestations, what percentage of soldiers are living with those sorts of things? So in terms of lice, I think early studies in, in 1915 were, were kind of saying that about 95% of men were infested with lice. You know, whether, whether they contracted the diseases from scratching their, their lice bites or, or not, they were a psychic distress in and of themselves. Trench fever, I mean, sorry, trench foot is, is also an interesting one, being that the numbers were quite high early on into the war. And then loads of professional medical historians would say that uh, dealing with trench foot in the war was, was a, a medical triumph in that the numbers go down rapidly. But I think it's, it's interesting to note that Trench foot was often associated with malingering or trying to um, fib to get out of service or, or you know, fake, fake injury or, or illness to get away from the front line. And at a certain point in the war, it, it becomes an offence to present uh, to a medical officer with trench foot. So I often wonder, you know, the, the numbers of men that aren't, aren't presenting, I guess, who, who have sore feet. So, of course, n- numbers are, are numbers, but at the same time, there are these kind of hidden aspects, I guess, of compliance. Yes. And so if it wasn't malingering, what were the causes of trench foot? Generally, it's from standing uh, for prolonged periods of time in water between freezing point and 16 or 15 degrees Celsius, which is interesting. I think Uh, a lot of people off the cuff would assume it's, you know, sub-zero temperatures. But yeah, it's quite quite easy to contract uh, in tepid water. And so that causes the blood vessels to contract, which would often cause nerve and skin death or necrosis or could lead to secondary infections. So how... How did the soldiers speak about their environment? What was their, what was their take on on where they were and the sorts of impact that environment was having on their health? Yeah, it's not just on their their physical health. Um, it's also on you know their their mental well being um, as well. Being surrounded in either you know boiling deserts um, or you know wet, muddy freezing often or cold trenches on the on the western front in um, France and Belgium and it just becomes this kind of monotony almost of of this everyday life. I think I I said earlier about you know soldiers describing lice infestations as a form of psychic disgust it just becomes this absolute menace and you you have 
you know, a large number of soldiers, in fact, actually saying that the worst thing, the worst thing was absolutely the lice, which is such an interesting answer is people are sitting through horrific experiences. So you can, you can imagine that uh, physical sensation of these lice. In fact, actually sitting in, in the archives, I think it was one of my first trips reading about these lice infestations. And I didn't realize I was scratching my arm the entire time I was reading so you can kind of understand the intense uh, psychic effect that these, these pests are having on the men yeah yeah no I can only I can only imagine and then what sort of diseases were the lice causing them so the the big one was typhus that was mainly on the eastern front so that's, you know, lots of Russian soldiers and German soldiers were um, encountering that. I looked at the you know, British and, and their dominions. So typhus was less of an issue, but it, it was also um, causing relapsing fever um, in, in which you kind of have, you know, periods of, um, of fever and like off and on. How, how effective was scientific medicine at treating trench foot, for example, or treating lice infestations? I think this was an, an, an enduring problem throughout the war. Because keeping on top of these acute and non-life-threatening issues, it was just an, a never-ending battle. Whether soldiers came forward with their problems or whether the people who were working in uh, laboratories back, you know, back in the UK were truly aware of the, the conditions on the Western Front. It, it just kind of it makes for this melting pot of different issues that are playing out all at once. I don't think the men in the trenches are as interested in the science behind what type of lice do what, what kind of chemicals work best to get rid of them. This is a problem that is immediate. It needs solving. Soldiers have limited equipment. And I think that that, that is also something that's really, really important to note is you're not going to have equal equipment everywhere in the war. So whether, whether these men um, have access to official medical intervention is, is you know super important so what do the soldiers come up with as a way of trying to combat lice and trench foot and what what do what are the soldiers doing and what are they saying about them how are they speaking about these conditions this is the fun part of uh, the research um you have some bonkers interventions uh, that these these soldiers are practicing and you'd think oh my gosh you know to what extremes are they uh, having to endure i guess these these lice and, and uh, wet conditions etc so i think in terms of lice the most common technique was locally known as chatting which is popping the the lice between the finger and thumbnail so manual extermination and I think yeah I think it's really interesting um, even the fact that they term this procedure chatting it's localized slang which it really feeds back into that that concept of well this is part of their own culture you know, these practices, they're not just random. They are intrinsic to soldiers' social and cultural worlds in the trenches. I think as well as that, you know, they're, they're using rations, like rationed candles to kind of light up the seams of their of their uniforms. And I think some soldiers bury bury their, their shirts um, in streams to kind of try and drown their lice and bashing them with rocks. One soldier... Uh, attested to a specific wall being the best back scratcher. So I think the techniques for lice are, are quite creative, you know, or turning your shirt inside out so the lice have to crawl back around to the inside to get to your skin. And um, right. I think it has a lot of interplay with humour as well, that humour as, as a coping strategy for this, like, god-awful situation that they, they find themselves in. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you, as you were speaking there... I 
I could almost imagine them uh, characterizing Lice as this really frustrating, but quite almost like part of the furniture that like it's the trenches, it's the mud and it's the lice as well as the, you know, the other men that I'm serving, serving alongside. Absolutely. And not just it's the lice, it's the lice on my superior commander. Everyone has lice. No one can escape it. You know, I might just be a private, but um, an equalizer. And um, yeah, it's part of the furniture in the sense they kind of start these everyday practices um, to combat their lice. I think some men even race their lice. Um, they so, you race know, have, their lice. Yeah, so they'd have put stakes on their lice and uh, race, them, race them across a newspaper and uh, see who could win. And it became almost like a pastime, you know. They'd also have competitions to see who could chat as many as lice as they, as they could off, off themselves, you know. Who has the most, who has the most lice? Yeah, um, I've just, I mean, I, I, this isn't historical, but um, the, the, the poignancy of when they must have had these lice races and... Then perhaps the following evening going over the top and losing the person that they would regularly race their lice against. It, it sounds bizarre, but it must have been even, it, it must have happened that it must be, have been extraordinary, extraordinarily traumatic and psychologically damaging passage. And I think you obviously have a number of, of men who um, end up with quite severe shell shock. Um, but then you also have another number of men who talk about this ability to get used to situations. So, and their, their own surprise in, in their ability to have things become a new normal, to use a, a COVID hot term, <laughs> new normal. I was about to say, <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, um, which for the, for the modern reader of, of uh, these soldiers' diaries or, or, you know, listening to, their um, oral history interviews is is just fascinating and quite confronting yeah the thought of being able to to get used to that existence i have one more question for you and Mm. um it's one that i am i guess over the course of the conversations that i'm having with people um I haven't asked it to anyone yet because uh, I haven't thought of it, but it's becoming of increasing interest to me. And it's the story behind the research. How did you get into the topic of, well, vernacular medicine first, and but then also what took you to the First World War? We need to flip that around. So okay. it, it was, yeah, it was First World War first and, and then vernacular medicine kind of came out of it Um and this is a classic story that academics probably like wouldn't tell uh, about themselves. I'm about to kind of like reveal my soul that back in undergrad, I, I did a, a course on um, the history of war in, in my undergraduate degree. And we had to write an essay, you know, just a brief 2,500 word essay on one experience uh, of war through one medium. And my other kind of twin passion, I guess, has, has always been clothing. So I chose uniforms. And that's kind of, I still have that kind of to this day, I've, I frame my work through, you know, these, these diseases I talk about are, are mostly spread through contaminated or infested uniforms, both lice and, and trench, trench foot through leaky boots, lice through infested clothing. Yeah. And so, so I, I wrote this essay kind of starting out quite on track. And, and the, the more research I did to kind of found myself getting into the British Medical Journal and finding these articles about unauthorised sewing factories kind of popping up in London and, and these, these women who were sewing these uniforms were coughing scarlet fever 
onto these uniforms and then and then sending them off and these soldiers were donning these uniforms and I think the authorities were getting quite anxious about these men getting sick before they were even shipped off to France or, or wherever and yeah, I didn't do very well for the essay because it kind of went off on this uh, medical tangent. They were like, where did this come from? Uh, but then being a very stubborn person, I was like, no, you're wrong. There's something here. And then proceeded to do my master's and PhD on that very topic. But yeah, it kind of it kind of morphed from, from straight, you know, uniforms and, and disease and looking at soldiers and then actually think these soldiers are uh, are looking after themselves in ways that I think that a lot of these practices or a lot of these issues like soldiers ridding themselves of lice are not new like they've always been there I, I, you go to any war museum or war memorial and these are kind of like these stock standard tales that are trotted out about the first world war but what I think is of importance is this different way of framing these occurrences because when you no longer think of them as like simply everyday war practices, but as, you know, a form of vernacular medicine, well, actually they become quite important. One of my earliest memories of knowing about the First World War was in the imagery of Robert Binion's famous poem titled For the Fallen, published first in September 1914. Since then, the characteristics that Binion attributed to soldiers who had died brave heroism through which they had achieved immortality, have come to be a synecdoche for how the war is imagined popularly. That is, those particular sentiments that he wrote into the poem have become part of our general language when it comes to remembering the conflict. You probably know some of For the Fallen already, particularly the stanza that runs, They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Elsewhere, in the same poem, he imagined, They went with songs to the battle, they were young, Straight of limb, true of eye, steady and aglow. They were staunch to the end against odds uncounted, They fell with their faces to the foe. I don't mean to suggest that these men weren't brave or courageous, rather that out of the heat of battle, while they waited in the trenches, their feet soaked with never-ending mud, their bodies plagued with lice, and their cheeks nibbled by rats as they slept. They were fearful, angry, and darkly comedic. They weren't heroic in these moments, they were just coping. Just as people thrust into circumstances not of their making cope at all times, in that they were human, and with that we can empathise. And I think that for me, that's what makes George's history of these men and the diseases they coped with so important. My thanks to Georgia McWinnie for the time and knowledge that she gave me whilst putting this episode together. Please like and subscribe to Body Politics either at bodypoliticspodcast.com on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your weekly fix of podcast content. Or stay in touch with the show by following us on Twitter, at BodyPolsPod. On the next episode, I'll be speaking with Klaas Kerkeller from University College Dublin and the University of Oxford about another aspect of the history of animals and disease, which promises to be one of the existential challenges of our times over the next century. 
antimicrobial resistance. Until then, stay safe, keep well, and goodbye. <laughs>